A theme of the 2022 Australian election was the question of diversity and the Australian Parliament. It revealed stories of hope and some of the challenges that the parties have around cultural diversity. In a nutshell, Australia's population is rich with cultural diversity, but Australia's parliament is not. The question becomes, how do you change it? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Osmond Chu. Osmond has been trying to make the Australian Labor Party a little more diverse for quite a while. As a Chinese-Australian, he was politicised as a child when he heard Pauline Hanson attack Chinese migrants. For the past few years, he's been pushing the Australian Labor Party to see the systemic barriers that are blocking greater diversity and working with them to do something about it. Today, we take stock. We celebrate the election of new candidates in May, but we also debrief the debacle that happened in the seat of Fowler. He explains how the tools of campaigning like coalition building, negotiation and power building, are what is needed to make the ALP more diverse. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Osman, welcome to Changemakers. Thanks for having me on. It's great. So what I'd like you to do just to start us off is, you know, tell everyone what kind of changemaker are you? I guess the best way to describe what I am is I'm a bit of a policy wonk that likes to dabble in a variety of areas. So, you know, public service, privatisation, talking about the Chinese diaspora. But I guess more recently, I've been doing a fair bit of work on diversity in politics. Uh, but I also think that while I am interested in you know policy and ideas, I also think it's essential to focus on building something better and not simply engage in abstract debates. And for me, that means recognising what the current political and institutional landscape is like and doing what we can to push the boundaries and turn you know, these ideas we have into reality. Excellent. So, so a wonk who's realistic about the world as it is in building the world as it should be, that's quite a range of, of, of interest and appetite. I like it. Yeah. So I think there's this I think way that the American democratic socialist Michael Harrington described his own politics, which I really like, and he described his politics as the left wing of the possible, and <laughs> that really speaks to me. <laughs> so not just the art of the possible, but pushing on the far left bit of the art of the possible. Okay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a pragmatist with a real heart. Cool. So 
the obvious question to then find out, um, Oz, is like, why? Where did this come from for you? Where did this mix of interests, not only about the sort of appetite for a possible policy and a, and a vision, but also the particular questions, you know, around, you know, mention, you mentioned the Chinese diaspora, you work a lot with the Labor Party. Where did your appetite for this line of work come from? And feel free to go back as far as makes sense to, to, to explain it. So I always like to think about, you know, why someone starts to engage in politics. And I think for me, it usually comes down to a moment that is a catalyst. And for me personally, that catalyst was the first incarnation of One Nation in the 1990s. And I see that as a moment where just the light switched on. And I was like, actually, politics matters. I don't think I'll ever forget the feeling that I had, you know, after hearing Hanson's inaugural speech in Parliament, just that sheer anger and the frustration. Because I think that's a moment that fundamentally shaped my worldview. Um, the fact that her views weren't just given a public platform by the fact that she was in Parliament, but also legitimacy by Prime Minister Howard in his refusal to condemn her. How old were you? Oh, I would have been probably like 10 wow. at the time. Um, and it changes how you see yourself and how you understand others in society see you. And for me, that fuels a lot of what I do. It really meant that I understood that who we le- elect and who governs matters, but even beyond just governing because it shapes the public discourse that we have. Yeah. So how did, so t- like, let's get into this, right? So you're 10 years old, maybe you, did you watch it on the television or did you? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's a combination, you know, watching it on television, there was like, you know, lots of coverage at the time. And, you know, I, I, my parents in a way weren't sort of surprised because, you know, they mentioned about Howard's comments in the 80s around Asian immigration. But I think while that moment had a profound impact, I think it sort of shaped my views at the time to think, no, I can't support the Liberal Party. But it took me a bit longer to go, to then take the next step to go, okay, you know, I don't like the Liberal Party, but actually it means that I should align myself to the Labor Party. And I think that took me a bit longer to come to that conclusion. Yeah. And so, what, so you know, so I can imagine that you, that you realised that unless – we had people who were going to fight against racism that we were going to have racism, right? You know, Pauline Hanson being in Parliament saying that's pretty, pretty big. Tell, tell me about the journey from there, right? You're 10 years old. When when did that turn into um, something you wanted to work on with, like as part of your life? I mean, I, I, mean, I guess I sort of <laughs> never thought about working on it as part of my life. I think it's a, a case of being motivated to being involved and sort of falling into us. Um, <laughs> so I think it was more towards the end of high school when sort of I sort of came to that conclusion that the sort of political landscape meant that, you know, we either would have a Labor government or a coalition government. And, you know, if I wanted to see change, really the best pathway would be through the Labor Party and helping to elect a Labor government. Though it's, it's sort of funny that even though the one nation and racism was sort of the thing that gave me political consciousness the first time around, in a strange way, it, by that point, it hadn't been the sort of animating thing I cared about. It was more broadly, you know, sort of the broader range of things that the Howard government had was doing, you know, around, you know, public education, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy, um, privatisation, you know, climate change. 
Yeah, okay. So there was, it was like all these other issues around sort of, you know, the way in which society works were actually the sort of, the, the product of your politics, but in in a sense, that first piece of anger perhaps was around that question of race. So, I, and I can understand why partly you chose the Labor Party given those broad ranging issues. But do you remember how you chose the Labor Party? When did that happen? Did you join a branch? Like, tell do you say there can be plenty of people here who don't know how the Labor Party works? How yeah, you- well, I mean, I mean, it kind of depends wh- wh- where, which state you're in, because the Labor Party, I think. People around the Centre Labor Party is a sort of federated structure. So the way the Labor Party works in, say, New South Wales is very different to, you know, Western Australia, Queensland, you know, the ACT. Um, so me personally, you know, while I joined the party, I didn't get involved for a branch um, immediately. Um, you know, I was involved in student politics as well as Young Labor. I mean, that was sort of my initial pathway into involvement in the Labor Party. And was it all you'd hoped for? I mean, <laughs> I, I, on reflection, I don't know what exactly I hoped for. I mean, there were a lot of frustrations, but I think as someone who has now been a Labor Party member for nearly 20 years. Well, well um, that's a long time. You, 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 see, you see the good and the bad. You can see there's often a lot of attention on the bad things that Labor does when it's in power or, you know, what it does in opposition that demoralizes people. But over that time, you know, you do see change. You know, you have seen, I have seen change in the Labor Party on a range of social issues, but also, you know, seeing the shift over the last, you know, 10 or so years away from the excesses and neoliberalism as well. So in that sense, you know, a lot of frustrations, but, you know, you can you, you see that there's still a bit of hope and you see the achievements of having a different government in charge. Yeah. If, and like thinking about your own story as opposed to the Labor Party broadly, is there something over the time, you know, 20 years is a long time to be involved in an institution. Is there something that you've been involved in while being in the Labor Party that is that has made you realise the kind of change, you know, like it, what, that, that's been important to you, that you that you've said, where you've seen that change come through that's made a difference for you? I mean, for me, the big thing that I've been involved in sort of at a personal level rather than as part of as part of a larger institution within the party is I think the work around diversity and, you know, seeing that, you know, if you are organised, if you build alliances, if you are strategic, you can actually shift conversations and make tangible changes. Um, And I think one thing I have realised as I've been a member for a long time is that often a lot of people who engage the Labor Party, they're not really taught and they don't really learn how to engage with this, what is essentially a massive political bureaucracy. And that kind of leads to a lot of frustration that people have because there's this idea of, you know, how you change things in the Labor Party that you sort of told, you know, you move a branch, motion a branch and then the branch motion goes to conference and the conference passes it and theoretically, um, you know, the, the Labor Party is supposed to implement it, whereas actually you need to use power and leverage and organise both inside and outside the party, um, as well as using external events as well. And it's sort of treating it as a sort of a larger political campaign rather than this, I guess, this sort of a hierarchical pyramid where you just push something up the line and then it's implemented. 
And that's interesting because what you're describing is basically that making change inside the Labor Party requires the art of change making and the skills of campaigning more than relying on a process or a, or something to, to deliver. In the same way that political change in government requires coalitions and the art of mobilisation and so forth. It's, it's not dissimilar to actually how it works inside the party. No, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we get into this question of diversity in the Labor Party. So, you know, uh, I'd love for you to explain to people, you know, some people will have a sense that of the Labor Party's appreciation of diversity and some people wouldn't, just like they might have had an appreciation of the changes that uh, the, the Labor Party has made around women in terms of diversity. But looking at the question of cultural diversity in the Labor Party, why would you need to do that, Osmond? Why would you need to run a campaign to make the Labor Party more culturally diverse? What was the challenge that you were confronting when you first started thinking about this work? So I started thinking about this probably about 2018, 2019. And what really prompted me to think about it was a report that the Australian Human Rights Commission released called Leading for Change. And it focused on, you know, culturally diverse leadership across a range of areas. So, you know, the public sector, corporate Australia, as well as parliament. And I think for the first time, it really quantified the extent of underrepresentation in Australian politics at a federal level. Uh, so it was something that, you know, people from culturally diverse backgrounds kind of sort of suspect, but it was the first time I really sort of quantified. And so the figures that came from that report were that only about 4% of Australian federal parliamentarians had a non overseas non-European background, whereas 21% of the population did. Um, and then when you consider that that's, that's averaged out for the Australian population, you're going to have a divergence between you know, urban, rural, you know, Sydney and Melbourne versus other capital cities. It really made me think, hang on, you know, effectively you're saying that about a quarter to a third of the population in a place like Sydney would be a person of colour. And I don't think I've ever been to any political events or definitely not a Labor Party event where that amount of diversity is in one room. And I think that's sort of, that's sort of to prompt my thinking. But I think the other thing that really supercharged it was 2019. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of focus on the 2019 federal election result. You know, the fact that Labor didn't win seats like Reeds, Banks or Chisholm, but also just the, I guess, the car crash of Michael Daly's comments about Asians with PhDs just before the state election. And I think that all sort of came together in the sense that there is something fundamentally wrong that we have a situation where Labor, which purports to be the party of multiculturalism, is not winning in culturally diverse seats. And not running culturally diverse candidates. Not running culturally diverse candidates. And there, there is something f systemically wrong in the party. And I think part of it was this sense of coasting on its laurels because there was a sense that, you know, oh, yeah, you know, the, the Liberal Party was seen as the you know, anti-Asian immigration party in the 80s and 90s, you know, John Howard, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think there was still that view amongst a large section of the party, whereas 
Australia in the last 20 years has become much more culturally diverse, like significant amounts of immigration, but also the kind of immigration has shifted from that post-war migration towards skilled migration. So you have a very different kind of migration, socioeconomically different, and without that memory of that period as well. And the fact is that the Liberal Party in New South Wales had actively gone about trying to detoxify itself. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, Barry O'Farrell won um, in 2011. There was this detoxification. They had actively gone out and built links with culturally diverse business and religious communities. Yeah. And the Labor Party just saying we're not as bad as them no longer kind of worked because they weren't doing stuff themselves. They weren't actually building their own party to be the party that they needed to be in a place that was far more multicultural, where the multiculturalism had a lot more class diversity is what I'm hearing in your in in in, to, in talking about how uh, what had changed in terms of the migration mix. And also just just for why don't you just remind everyone what Michael Daly said? Because some people might not be aware, some of our international listeners. So this was a opposition leader of the Labor Party and it was a few days before a state election. And and tell us what he said, Osman. So he it, it was video footage from a event I think he was speaking at in the Blue Mountains and the recorded comments were him talking about how his I think I think it was like his daughter couldn't live in his local area because Asians with PhDs were coming in, you know, taking jobs and pricing people out. And yeah, <laughs> like I, I just even even just reflecting on those comments, I just you you just kind of go how how can you think that's an acceptable thing? Like, let alone to, th- to think privately, but to publicly say. What was he doing, you know, like to say it? Oh, anyway. It said something that was so wrong inside, something was going wrong inside that party for, for that to be going on. Okay, so what did you do about it? I mean, so in terms of the Michael Daly situation, I think that sort of prompted a lot of thinking. Um, so amongst myself and I think a few others. So one thing I was asked to do you know, a number of months later after the federal election was um, I was asked to write a report on diversity in politics. And what I did is I sort of had to think, you know, Australia you know, clearly has an issue, but how do we compare to other countries around the world? Um, so as part of that report, I had to look at diversity in politics in, you know, comparable Westminster countries. So New Zealand, Canada, the UK. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm sure they also have problems. Um, But I think what really shocked me after that was realising that Australia didn't just have a problem, but how bad the problem was compared to other countries. So just as an example, you can look at New Zealand and Canada, demographically very similar to us, you know, obviously has um, issues around, you know, colonisation and First Nations. About 15% of their national parliaments are effectively, you know, people of not non-Indigenous people of colour. And this is, these two countries have completely different electoral systems. One's a proportional system, one's a single member first past the post system. And then you look at the UK, which is less diverse than Australia, but also has much more diversity in its parliament. So about 10% of its parliament was black and minority ethnic. So I think that really prompted me to think there is something really wrong in Australia where 
we are so far behind every other comparable country. And that was in that report was released in 2020. And I had initially planned to sort of do some work around diversity in politics until and sort of start these conversations until the pandemic hit. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think you know the the pandemic it really reinforced a lot of my thinking. I think over the last two years, it's been an interesting time for me personally. You know, as someone from who is a Chinese Australian, you know, sort of the deterioration of Australia-China relations, the, the wider impact on diaspora, so the, the sort of rise in anti-Asian racism in Australia, but also in that report that I did, I presented to a parliamentary inquiry um, towards the end of 2020, and about issues facing diaspora communities. And while presenting, I was effectively subjected to a McCarthyist loyalty test by uh, a conservative senator. Oh, my. Which, uh, don't tell me it was Erica Betts. <laughs> uh, yes, it was that, uh, the Tasmanian, <laughs> uh, Tasmanian senator Erica Betts, um, sort of demanding that myself and others of two other Chinese Australians I appeared with, um, you know, condemn the Chinese Communist Party. Oh, wow. Because you could be, you know, your loyalty could not be straight. Wow. Right. So there is clearly a problem in our parliament. Yeah. And I think I think those moments really crystallised something for me um, because it made it abundantly clear that however much you want to avoid talking about race, identity and culture or hope it will disappear, it always comes back. And it convinced me that while allyship is important, it's not enough, that unless you have a seat at the table, you'll always be an afterthought. Yeah, that's interesting that it actually um, shaped your, I guess, your understanding of how you had to take this political issue head on, right, that you couldn't, you know, we care about all the other issues, but this issue had to be part of something that you were putting right front and centre. So how did you put it front and centre, Osman? What did you do? Yeah, so I think... What happened is towards the beginning of last year, um, I started having conversations with other people I knew within the Labor Party from who are people of colour. Um, so, you know, people who are you know, rank and file members, unionists, staffers, you know, people who'd been candidates or were local councillors, and also people from across the factional divide. So, Within the Labor Party, we have sort of two organised factions, one the left faction and one is the right faction. But I think one thing that was clear was that there was recognition by people that it was a systemic issue and it wasn't the fault or creation of one single factional grouping and that if we were going to make any improvements, we'd have to actually work together because that's the way that wins and affirmative action were gained by sort of transcending that factional divide. But I think importantly, I think we, the way we talked about it with people was that it wasn't just the right thing to do. It's also in Labor's electoral self-interest to better reflect the communities it wants to represent. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that of everywhere, every business, every institution, the more diverse those institutions, the better the decision-making processes. Now maybe it's time for the Labor Party to embrace that kind of approach too. So you set up the ALP Cultural Diversity Group. Tell us about how that idea emerged out of these conversations. It was sort of like an organic and informal group and it was about getting people who were having conversations together because I think a lot of these conversations were one-on-one 
between individuals, but it wasn't really organized in any sense. Um, so the idea was to sort of get people together and think about what we could do, how we could get it on the agenda. So our initial plan ha- was to have the start a wider conversation with the party early last year. Um, so we had initially planned to have a sort of like a little campaign around a platform change to New South Wales Party to say, hey, we recognise that underrepresentation is an issue, and then we we will, we will try to do stuff about it. You know, very general principles, um, but the idea was to sort of start the conversation, and then use the recognition that it was an issue to then pivot to, you know, okay, let's start talking about some of the solutions. <laughs> and and I, I think it, it was interesting because we had started to do that work and then Fowler happened, which kind of supercharged everything. <laughs> so you're going to have to explain what Fowler was for people who don't know about the specifics. Yeah. So Fowler is a electorate in southwest Sydney that's one of the most multicultural and working class ones in the country. The sitting member was retiring and, you know, a young woman of Vietnamese heritage, Tuli, um, put her hand up to and was going to run for pre-selection. Uh, what happened is that the party installed the Deputy Senate Leader Christina Keneally, who was an ex-Premier of New South Wales, but who lived in a wealthy part of Sydney, the diametrically opposite part of Sydney, yeah. um, into the seat. And I think that caused a lot of outrage for a variety of reasons. You know, Firstly, I think a lot of people were angry because often party members are angry about the sort of overriding of local pre-selections to install candidates. But I think it was also the sort of wider message that it sent that in one of the most diverse and multicultural seats in the country, we couldn't have a culturally diverse candidate. And often the excuses that are put forward are that, oh, yeah, we don't have anyone, you know, there's no one who would be a good fit. Whereas two, like for most people, sort of ticked all those boxes. So all the the usual excuses of, oh, we don't have anyone who's good, um, there's, no, there's no one we can select, just went out the door. And it was just this stark contrast of, you know, someone who sort of represented – a lot of the things that Labor was talking about, these ideas of you know having you know aspiration for you know second generation kids from like migrant backgrounds, essentially when it was inconvenient, it was pushed away to the side. And what was quite telling was that after this decision was announced and the there was a significant amount of anger, it was quite clear that. There was a real struggle by people to really understand why people were so angry, and you could quite you could tell it through the sort of rationalisation used, um, you know, sort of comparing Christina Keneally's, you know, being a success, successful migrant, oh, as that if was that the was part. I thought, to be honest, because for, for the listeners who don't know, she's 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 a migrant. She's from America, a white woman from America. Yeah, so there were. A lot of elements to it that just sort of reinforced that there was this disconnection and just a failure to understand why people were so angry. And when I have these conversations about diversity within politics and the Labor Party, I think there is a bit of a disconnect. I think there's, there's, there's two things that are happening. I think firstly, there is a disconnect between why party members are angry and why the broader community is angry. Because I think the reality is that while I do think that 
a more democratic and contestable Labor Party is important. Most people in the community don't really care that much about the process. And what they were angry about was this seeing what they sort of suspected anyway that everyone talks about diversity, but when it's inconvenient, it's pushed to the side. And, you know, you could be someone, for, a person of colour who's done all these great things, but it doesn't matter because you're not part of a political club. Yeah, and it was almost saying that whole community didn't really matter because the more important thing was to find some senior minister a seat somewhere. Yeah, so I think that sort of supercharged things um, and I think what it showed is that even when situations are bad, you can actually still make progress. So in the sort of lead up to Fowler, as a group, we had started thinking about, okay, you know, post this campaign, to get like a motion to talk about the lack of diversity and the need to do something about it. You know, what are the specific things that we could ask for? So, you know, we start we before Fowler, we started to have conversations with people, go, okay, you know, what are the tangible and practical things that would start to make a difference? Because we know that there's no silver bullet, that this thing is going to take some time, but it's important to actually start to do create building blocks where we implement some things and we can build on it. So we've fouled, it kind of supercharged a lot of what we were doing. You know, a number of us who were involved in the group, you know, publicly spoke about what had happened. But we also put forward a few proposals about, okay, we recognize this is a shit situation, but here are some things that you can do that show you get it's an issue. So for example, starting to collect data on diversity within the party. It's one of those weird things that Australia, for some reason, just doesn't collect data and cultural diversity in many institutions. It seems like a basic thing, but it just doesn't happen. And almost because there is no collection of data, you can't kind of prove or disprove that there is a lack of diversity. You know, other things like having a diversity fellowship so we can go, okay, you know, one of the things that people keep raising is the a supply issue that we don't have people from culturally diverse backgrounds. How about we sort of invert the usual process of, you know, waiting for people to come to the Labor Party and, you know, somehow filter their way through and go, actually, we are actively searching for people and we are going to invest in them. So, you know, these are some of the things that we proposed to sort of as a step forward to say, okay, this is happening. Did you talk about candidates? I think one of the challenges is that there is often this idea of going straight to quotas or targets, but I think unless you get the data question right. It's more of a stage two question. One of these things is that there is still a contest about, you know, what do you measure? And I think until we actually land the data question and get it normalized, like what are you going to build a quota or a target around? Because that will be contested. I think it's sort of telling that in the Jenkins review, like while a lot of the focus of the Jenkins review was on gender, it also had a number of recommendations around diversity in politics more broadly. And one of the key recommendations was around actually collecting and publishing diversity data. And I think that alone, I think, you know, that can seem so simple, but I think that also has a transformative effect because people will not be able to deny the fact that there is a lack of diversity anymore if that happens. And that will also prompt further change. So how did it go? Yeah, so I think at conference we, you know, got our got our platform change up, no no problems, but we also got agreement from, you know, party office to those like other changes that we were advocating for, you know, to have for the party to collect data and diversity 
in key positions to have a diversity fellowship. And also, you know, they made some commitments around sort of investing in research around um, those views and attitudes, particularly of sort of those second generation Australians. So, so as I said previously, we're in the, under no illusions that any of it is a silver bullet, but I think it sort of showed that there was a recognition that this was an issue. And from there, we can make further changes and advocate for something more. And I think the other thing is that by showing that we could actually make some ground, it actually encourages more people. Because I think viability is really important in political movements because if people feel like you're not getting anywhere, they don't want to get involved and jump on board. But I think if you can demonstrate that what you do isn't a waste of time, but you're actually making progress. It actually encourages other people to get involved. And speaking of, you know, like a, from that time, if you cast it forward, you know, we've only just had only a few weeks ago uh, the federal election. And, you know, it's in some respects that the you know May 2022 election is a sort of measure of some of the impacts that have happened, positive and negative, one could say in some respects. How do you feel like it's going now? You know, like, they, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how there's been a big increase in terms of, of diversity in some of the candidature, like in parliament for the ALP. What's your take? What, what, what worked? <laughs> what didn't work uh, in the election? I mean, I think there were a few things that really worked. And it's quite clear from the reaction to some of the new Labor MPs that people want a parliament that's more reflective of multicultural Australia. So, you know, the reactions to, you know, story like Sam Lim's story, for example, as obviously a lot of focus on the fact that he's a dolphin trainer, but, you know, the fact that we have um, someone who migrated to Australia in his middle age, who is now a member of the lower house, I think is just like fantastic. Because I think there's often this focus on diversity, which is more about, you know, second, third generation Australians. But I think the reaction to his story, and as well as the stories of people like, you know, my good friend Sally Situ, who got elected in the seat of Reid, just show there's a real appetite for more diversity in our parliament. And, you know, I'm, it's, it's one of those things where... I'm both mindful that there is still a lot for Labor to do, but also I just think it's a great thing to celebrate this big increase. And it's particularly, it's a significant increase of women of colour um, within the Labor Party. And Indigenous women, a lot of Indigenous women. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, a, a, it's a significant increase and a potential, potentially like really transformative for the culture within the party. I guess for me, the main thing is ensuring we build on that and that this isn't just a blip. But I think that, you know, them telling their stories and the reaction also shows that it's actually good for Labor to do this as well. Like the sort of message that Labor was trying to talk up is, uh, you know, a party of just multiculturalism as well as aspiration. And the fact, you know, sort of going back to some of these candidates, my friend Sally, you know, she's the daughter of refugees who came to Australia, who worked in, you know, manufacturing jobs, grew up in Cabramatta, and now she's a member of parliament. I think it's a great story, not just for the Labor Party, but also Australia itself. And if we're talking about rebuilding trust in our democracy um, and showing that we're a successful multicultural society, actually having more diversity in parliament is a great way of doing it. And what about the lesson that came from Fowler, right? That, that also played out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that sort of stark contrast where I think it's quite clear that we're entering an era where people don't want to be taken for granted 
and when there is a viable alternative, if they feel like they're being taken for granted, they will vote for that viable alternative. So it's like interesting when you compare and contrast, say, like Fowler to Parramatta, because I think there's some interesting things at play. You know, a lot of focus on Fowler, not so much on Parramatta because there still was a slight swing towards Labor. But in many ways, just, I think... Just for our international listeners, Fowler, that's the seat where Christina Keneally ran and she lost. Parramatta was also a seat that's very multicultural where uh, a candidate who grew up in from the eastern suburbs was imposed on the members, but but a different result played out. Yeah. So I think one of the differences was... In Fowler, you had a candidate who firstly wasn't a Liberal Party member, so she ran as an independent who also had a long-standing connection to community, whereas in Parramatta, it was a sort of classic Labor versus Liberal contest. Obviously, the Liberal Party was on the nose, but I think the other thing that sort of played into it is that there were actually significant swings against the Labor Party in the seat of Parramatta, but what sort of covered up those swings were quite significant swings against the Liberal Party in the north east of the seat, which was significant, which has a big Chinese Australian population. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So I, I think I think that there's, there's, there's interesting elements and I think one of the lessons from this election and for Labor is that, you know, if it wants to keep its majority going into the future, it really has to reach out to multicultural communities in those middle ring suburbs. And I think that if it wants to do that, it has to actually show that it reflects those communities. Yeah, and builds relationships that are not tokenistic and that actually sort of build bridges that have to be created because they aren't necessarily there to start with. They're not historical. So, you know, some people might ask, I want to ask sort of two sort of shorter reflective questions. Okay, so we had the election, we're here now, we're interested in cultural diversity. Some people might say, Osmond, why do you bother with the Labor Party when it comes to building diversity? Why wouldn't you just do be like the Teal Independents and run some independent strategy to get more diversity into the, into the into the Parliament? Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be easier? Why do you stick with the Labor Party as your space to make change? I actually think the federal election shows that the pathway to greater cultural diversity will only come through the Labor Party because the significant increase we've seen really came through the Labor Party. Other than Dai Lee, there really was no overall increase in cultural diversity from any other party, whether it's the Coalition, the Greens, or the Climate 200-backed independents. Uh, so you know, while, while the Greens and Liberals might have run diverse candidates, they weren't in winnable seats. And I think... Fowler is a very particular situation. You know, Dai Li was an independent. She'd run for a sort of seat in the area multiple times. She was a local councillor, but also she got in because of particular circumstances of who Labor imposed. You know, if it was another candidate who had local connections, you know, it's quite likely it would have been a very different result. But I think for me, if it's about normalization to make it something that is seen as you know, why aren't you doing this? It's only going to happen through the Labor Party. Because you can look overseas at a country like the UK where the Conservative Party has quite a diverse cabinet now. Um, I think it's like about a quarter of the cabinet are black and minority ethnic, which almost seems inconceivable in Australia, despite Australia being a more diverse country. But, you know, the only reason why they've gone in that direction is because the Labor Party in the UK has normalised diversity. You know, that hasn't happened overnight. It's come through a lot of struggles within the party there, but there is almost a contagious effect 
by having a major party take diversity seriously and being electorally successful. Other parties see it and start to recognise it's a necessity. And you could say that's that's how change happened with, with gender diversity in, in many respects, Labor led and others followed. Okay, so let's look forward then, right? If it's, if it's going to be Labor that creates the anchor for a diverse parliament and um, we want to see that and, and you've sort of talked about the change that you've done over, worked on over the last few years, cast forward, how does more change happen? What happens over the next three years, over the next six years to, to bring this, this, ho- this hope to reality? on the left-wing side of the art of the possible? So, so I think there's probably a few things that, that need to happen, so both within the Labor Party but also outside the Labor Party. Um, so I think one of the big opportunities is the implementation of the Jenkins Review. So Labor has committed to implementing every single recommendation and as part of it there are a range of recommendations about diversity more broadly so you know the publication and collection of diversity data but one of the recommendations was a 10-year strategy to increase diversity in politics with specific actions you know what what those specific actions are and are to be seen and to be determined but i think that also provides a really good opportunity to drive diversity across the entire party system because it's not something that it will be limited to one party. The idea is to get buy-in from all the political players. Um, So I think that is really important and it's something that those who want a more diverse parliament and not just about you know, more cultural diversity, but, you know, more First Nations MPs, people with disability. Like, I think it's something that has not been focused on, but there is a great opportunity to create the foundations to drive more diversity in politics. Within the Labor Party itself, I think that talking, firstly, sort of talking about the successes and using that to drive more structural changes. So, you know, getting the collection and publication of data on diversity, you know, creating things like a diversity fellowship in all states and also how we can organise be outside our silos. So, you know, the conversations I'm involved in in New South Wales, there are other similar conversations that have ha- do happen in other states. So, at the moment, it's a very state-siloed conversation. You know, I do talk to some people from other states, but there isn't a national conversation as yet. And I think that's also a next step to sort of say this is not just, you know, a New South Wales problem or a Victoria problem, but is something that we all need to think about, particularly because Australia is going to continue to be a more diverse country. Like we're demographically changing. And if we actually get ahead of the wave, it's an opportunity for the Labor Party. And I think that's the thing that I always do because you know, having had these conversations with a bunch of people, there is this challenge where there is a what I find a generational disjuncture where there are a lot of younger millennial Zoomers who are really frustrated and angry about the lack of diversity and is probably towards the older middle range of the millennials. I completely understand that because we live in an era where there is a global discussion about representation. So it's, you know, in the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, there's a talk about representation beyond just politics. But you also have a cohort within the party who have 
been party members for a really long time. They've seen Australia transition from, you know, white Australia to a much more diverse country and seen decreases in racism. So they see progress and they say, oh, well, you know, progress is happening. And it's trying to sort of, I guess, manage and bridge these two different viewpoints to sort of acknowledge acknowledge both these generational viewpoints, but also say that these changes are important because is ultimately about building a stronger Labor Party. It's not taking away anything from anyone. It's about building a stronger party that can deliver the things that we all want. Yeah, because it being more diverse is going to make it richer and therefore it's going to make it be able to make better decisions into the future is what I'm hearing. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it's it's one of those things where if it's seen as a zero-sum game that you will the opportunities to build that majority for change will break down. And I'm constantly mindful of that, that you need to build and hold that coalition together if you want change, which is, which can be tough at times. But you know, if you actually want to see change, you have to do that. Thank you. So thank you so much because what I feel like we've heard in this conversation is how the skills and uh, characteristics of change-making that our listeners would be familiar with in other spaces in running broad-based campaigns are utterly critical for the pragmatic and practical work of making change on an issue like this inside the Labor Party. Osman, thank you for sharing your insights with us today and best of luck and boldness in the change that you pursue going forward. Thanks for having me on. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. making.